Dealmaker Insights, the podcast brought to you by Reed Smith's corporate and finance lawyers from around the globe. In this podcast series, we explore the various legal and financial issues impacting your deals. Should you have any questions on any of the content through this series, please contact our speakers. Hi, it's James and Ravi here for another session on contract law. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the boilerplate provisions that you often ignore at the back of the or end of the contract, but are provisions that are really helpful in helping you if and when contracts go wrong. So some of the areas we're going to talk about are governing law and jurisdiction, dispute resolution, termination rights, limitation of liability, notice provisions, and process agent provisions. So I'm going to get us started on governing law and jurisdiction. Often the last provision in a contract, and by this point, many people have switched off, so don't pay attention to it. But it it truly is important because it governs not only the interpretation and performance of the contract, but also the consequences of breach, including the assessment of damages and limitation. It identifies a substantive law that will be applied when determining the rights and obligations of the parties and any disputes that arise. But it doesn't indicate how disputes are to be resolved, for example, through courts or arbitration. You need to have careful consideration about the choice of governing law before beginning to draft the contract, since if, for example, you're in England, it's not to be English law, a lawyer qualified in the relevant jurisdiction will need to advise on the agreement to make sure it's binding, applicable and has the right, uh, and you're aware of all the obligations that come about from having your contract governed in that jurisdiction. A well-drafted governing law clause will minimise uncertainty and the risk of potentially long and costly disputes regarding which country's laws govern the obligations of the parties under the contract. You also need to include a well-drafted jurisdiction clause, i.e. which country's court or courts will hear the dispute. Where the parties agree to submit disputes to the court of a particular jurisdiction, the usual practice is to provide for that law, for the law of that jurisdiction to be the governing law of the contract. So essentially, if you're going to have your court, uh, your cases heard in England and governed by the courts of England and Wales, then you'll have English and Welsh law governing the contract as well. But it doesn't always have to be the case. So you can have slight differences. So you could have the laws of France applying, but the courts of England hearing it. It's very uncommon these days, but it can happen. Also, you need to think about whether you're giving exclusive or non-exclusive jurisdiction to a particular country's courts. Generally, you want to make sure it's exclusive so that only those that country's courts can hear the dispute. But often you do see non-exclusive jurisdiction given over certain disputes. So it's really important to consider the governing law and jurisdiction at the beginning of the contract and negotiation. Make sure you've got the right lawyers involved to advise you on it and that you're aware of the rights and obligations you have under that that country's system of laws and court procedures. You also would need to consider whether you include a dispute resolution clause. That's a mechanism by which the parties can resolve the dispute without necessarily going all the way to litigation. Forms of ADR or alternative dispute resolution have become increasingly popular and there's a broad spectrum of, of alternatives to the traditional trial process that people often associate with contract disputes. Those include informal discussions, mini trials, mediation, expert determination, reference to a disputes board, arbitration, and loads of other procedures agreed by the parties. For these purposes, the technical differences between the various forms of ADR are not generally significant, although it's important to draw a distinction between those forms of ADR which are binding and those which are non-binding. 
A dispute resolution clause should specify a binding method of dispute resolution. Otherwise, it's just there to help the parties facilitate a discussion. In most cases, the choice will be litigation, arbitration or expert determination. However, a lot of parties may wish to have a prior form of non-binding resolution process before then in the hopes of facilitating a discussion and a resolution before going to court or arbitration. In terms of drafting these clauses, you can often get bogged down in a lot of detail and have very long, complex procedures built into the documents. Now, whilst that might seem like a sensible idea because it provides certainty and potentially flexibility, you need to be really careful here because sometimes it can result in unnecessary unnecessary delays. And when you're trying to enforce or, um, or a contract, you may not want to have to go through a very cumbersome process, which through the detailed drafting that you've included ties you into a process which can take a long time. So in this scenario, and often with contract drafting, simplicity is king. Thanks, Ravi. So what happens if you want to get out of the contract? Well, this is where termination rights come in. So a termination clause may create a termination right where there'd be none at common law. For example, there is no common law right to terminate a contract for the insolvency or threatened insolvency of a counterparty or on the occurrence of material breach, unless that breach is interpreted as repudiatory. A termination clause may also remove uncertainty, since it is often unclear whether a breach of contract has triggered the right to terminate common law. However, whether a contract term allows a party to terminate in any particular circumstance is always a question of fact and interpretation. Commercial contracts typically include a wide range of termination rights. The triggers for termination may include breach. So this could be material breach, substantial breach, any breach, or limited solely to a breach of a payment duty. Often you'll have, you'll see additional drafting, which says that if the breach can be remedied and no such remedy occurs within a specified period of time, that is deemed to be a material breach. Other forms of uh, triggers are Convenience, i.e. on notice, no grounds are specified for termination, but a period of notice is required. This is helpful in a commercial context if one counterparty wishes to exit the co- or terminate the, t- uh, the contract where there are no grounds for termination. Damage to reputation, a party may want the right to terminate a contract if it fears damage to its reputation from the other party's conduct and the contractual association between the two. This may be a concern if the other party interacts with the first party's customers or the first party is a charity. Another trigger may be the insolvency of the other party. A party will usually wish to terminate a contract if the other party becomes insolvent or is at risk of insolvency or ceases to trade. And finally, the change of control. We often see this during due diligence processes and it is a key item in any corporate transaction. This trigger allows the other party to terminate the contract if the other party undergoes a change of control. So that may be a direct change of control or a change of control higher up in the in the structure. How this trigger is breached will depend solely on the drafting in the in the contract. And you do sometimes see some fairly funky drafting here. So it's one to keep an eye on. So now we walk through how you might terminate an agreement. How would you limit your liability under that agreement? 
So it's common for a commercial agreement to include a cap on liability. Contract damages are primarily intended to make the non-breaching party whole and ensure it gets the benefit of its original bargain. A cap on liability can prevent damages from becoming a windfall for a non-breaching party. Sellers generally seek to include a liability cap as they are typically at a greater risk of incurring liability for a breach. In drafting a liability cap, a seller should ensure that this provision caps its potential liability under an agreement to a fixed amount. It is not a good position to have an uncapped liability and limit the maximum aggregate liability for all potential claims that may arise under the agreement, not just for individual claims, even if the parties decide to include a cap for those individual claims. From a seller's perspective, the cap is usually defined as the total amount paid under the agreement, either on a cumulative basis or, more often, only for a defined period before the liability arises. We typically see periods of six months to one year, but this is a commercial point, so anything could be agreed here. Without this defined period, a seller in a multi-year agreement may become liable for amounts it's been paid for goods or services that the buyer has already received and accepted. The seller should expect the customer to negotiate to exclude the liability, the limitation liability provision entirely, especially if the customer is purchasing goods as an end user, i.e. not as a distributor or reseller, because the risk of committing a significant breach normally lies with the seller. They may wish to include both amounts already paid and amounts that remain payable. Customers commonly request this modification in fixed term service agreements where the customers do not pay a large percentage of their fees up front. The customer may also negotiate to calculate the cap as a multiple of the total amount of fees paid or payable. They may want to make the provision mutual. The seller should determine as a matter of negotiating strategy whether to make the provision mutual in the initial draft. So we'll move on to notice provisions. Again, as, as Ravi said, this really is a boilerplate provision, but, but something to, to be mindful of. Many commercial agreements and deeds contain provisions that require one party to serve notice on the other or on a third party in circumstances, usually when exercising legal rights under the contract. For example, an agreement will usually require a party to serve notice on the other on an intention to terminate. Typically, those agreements will include a notices clause to provide agreed means of sending formal notices. Such clause will usually agree how to serve notices under the agreement and agree when a notice is deemed delivered. Even if a document does not include an express provision dealing with notices, certain statutory provisions may apply, fulfilling a sim similar function to notices clause. It is worth considering whether the notice provision should cover all communications, even ones that are not formal notices. Whether this is appropriate or not will need to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis, taking into account the nature of the transaction, the underlying relationship of the parties, and the likely frequency and type of communications that may be needed. If the contract has a notice provision, then it is important you act in accordance with it. Ravi, I don't know about you, but uh, I've seen a few historical agreements where you know they've got fax as a form of notice, but, but no email correspondence. How do you feel about that? I think in this day and age, that's crazy. Contracts definitely need to have email as a, a form of notice. No one really has fax machines anymore, but everyone emails. Completely agree. 
I guess the one thing you need to be careful of is that emails often get lost lost in inboxes. So you need to make sure an appropriate person is put as a contact in the contact details for that notice. Otherwise, that notice will be deemed to be given and no one's actually looked at it. So notice provisions won't apply when you're trying to start legal proceedings, including arbitration, or they shouldn't anyway. And it's really important to make sure you exclude those. Now, as I mentioned earlier, agreements usually contain a jurisdiction clause giving the court of a particular country jurisdiction over disputes arising from that contract. But that, con- that clause is only effective if it's actually possible to serve proceedings on the relevant party within that jurisdiction. And the rules for determining whether a claim can be served outside the jurisdiction with or without court permission and the procedure for doing so is complicated, costly and time consuming. So it's best to avoid it. And the way to do that is using a process agent provision. So what this does is simplifies the process of serving legal process on a foreign counterparty by agreeing upfront who is authorised to accept service on that party's behalf within the jurisdiction. So, for example, if you're an English company in a contract with a US company and you want to start proceedings in relation to that contract, you would want to have someone within England who you could serve proceedings on without having to go all the way to the US and go through the process that you might find is cumbersome and costly. The process agent needs to be appointed in the UK and they need to be appointed and identified in advance and named within that contract. And that should simplify your life so much more if you are in that unfortunate situation of having to commence legal proceedings. That's it from James and I. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and the previous episodes. And thanks for tuning in. Bye. Dealmaker Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's corporate and financial industry practices, please email dealmakerinsights at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.